those that really require a physical exam need to get back to seeing their patients uh, in person. And there are certainly fields where it's crucial. You can't really assess the problem without touching the patient and examining them. Uh, and a lot of these exams are sensitive exams where there's no way you could accomplish them over a screen. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today face a global war for talent, and high-skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top freelancers to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Wright, a surgeon at the University of Washington Medical Center and associate professor as well. We'll discuss how Dr. Wright is adapting to the current environment in a profession that has historically relied on face-to-face interactions and answer the question, can doctors really work from home? Hi, I'm Jonathan Wright. I'm an oncologist at the University of Washington. I'm a surgeon and uh, also a researcher as well. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I think one of the things that was really interesting when we ran into each other is how ideas like telemedicine and just the health industry overall is, is starting to evolve and specifically you being a surgeon. But before we get into how your practice is starting to change. I, I want to get an idea of what led you to oncology in the first place. I always wanted to be a doctor as a kid growing up. I actually thought I'd end up being a family practice doc back in my uh, rural community that I grew up in. But then when I got into medical school, I realized that I, I really enjoyed operating to kind of fix the whatever the patient was facing. But I really enjoyed that relationship with patients too, of seeing them in the office and getting to know them and their families. And so oncology really offered me that opportunity and specifically in urologic oncology because I do the the screening, the diagnosis, treatment, and the long-term follow-up for patients. So I get to walk with them through the entire experience around their disease. And so it really is a perfect opportunity for me to, to do the things that I enjoy, which are taking care of patients, operating, and uh, being a part of their lives too. Now let's go back six months. You know, six months ago when you were practicing with patients, were you doing any sort of telemedicine or, or Zoom video calls or, or any of that consulting? Yeah, essentially none. I had one of my partners who was trying to do a research project to uh, help those in rural communities, uh, since we bring patients in from five states, to save them the couple thousand dollars to travel. And so we were doing it, you know, once every couple of months. It was very, very rare that that we were doing it. I had a ton of in-person meetings, many of my days starting at 630 with in-person meetings at work. So very little telemedicine, telework whatsoever six months ago. And boy, did that change. When you were doing that project six months ago, before we get to how things changed, when you were doing that project six months ago, did it feel radical? Like, were there a bunch of doctors saying, hey, you know, we can't do that. This face-to-face connection is is critical. Like, what stopped medicine or the health industry from going, to your point, reaching out and using technology to people in rural situations or saving people that may want to spend the money on the actual care instead of travel and some other things? What was the resistance? 
Yeah, I think that so for this project, I think when when it was put in front of us, it was like, well, this is a no brainer. Why haven't we been doing this? But as far as why weren't we doing it more broadly, there were a lot of barriers to that. First and foremost is the whole HIPAA, which is the uh, patient confidentiality. You had to have a platform that would be HIPAA compliant. And so you'd be forcing physicians and groups to go out and buy those type of things. They didn't have that. Insurances weren't paying the same parity for uh, in-person versus versus visits that were being done in person. Medicare was only covering primarily for those that lived in underserved areas. And at the time, you had to, and this has gotten better even just before COVID, but the patient had to be in a healthcare facility, and you had to be as a doctor in a healthcare facility in order for this to uh, to occur. So it just wasn't a very good system for it. Although most people said. I mean, if we could just get this to work and do it from home, it'd make a lot more sense. Take me to the the current situation. We're coming to a hospital. If you have some of the diseases that you diagnose and treat, it may not be possible, especially with people that are older or have other other conditions. How did it change and, and what has the process of change been like, not only for the doctors in the hospital, but but for the patients? Take me through that journey. Yeah, for you know, because we literally just stopped seeing, almost stopped seeing patients overnight. Patients cannot come into the clinic unless they have very certain conditions. We're doing a lot of just telephone stuff because the infrastructure, the hardware was not in the in most centers to be able to do it. So there was a huge ramp up to get departments and hospitals and clinics having the hardware. Then we had to get the training, you know, and I, you could say, what do you mean you have to do training? But everything is so regulated. All the doctors had to go and do training to do this. And that slowed things up, too. And then they had to get approved to do it. But once we were able to get it up and go, then it really was, you know, like the light switch. We're just, OK, we're calling patients at home and we're and we're we use Zoom and we're Zooming with everybody. I want to talk about how this is this change has impacted you Personally, you're instead of getting in your car every day and, and driving to the office, you're sitting at home with your your family. I mean, I I like yourself have everybody at home with me and, and we're trying to do uh, school and some other things. How has the experience impacted you both positively or or negatively? First, for just overall, and then for me myself, is that in my group, some of us do cancer and some of us do non-cancer. So the non-cancer people were, were having a lot more at time, at home time. My actual practice of coming into the office has not changed dramatically because the cancer still needed to be treated. So I've still been coming in most every day to the office. I will say that the, that the bookend parts of the days have become shorter. And I love being able to do my 6.30 meeting via Zoom than by having to drive in and be there in person. It saves me a half hour on both sides of the day, too. So, But as far as how it's impacted me, because I am at home, too, more, not uh, dramatically, but you just realize what's important, really, in, in, in your life sometimes. And you realize that work can still go on. Our health is so crucial and our families are so important to us. And just, you know, watching my family trapped in the house, how important that personal interaction is. I notice in our community, I know you see it, Paul, too, is that there's so many more people out walking with their spouses, with their kids, and everyone waves. Everyone stops and talks at social distances. I think, at least thus far, I think I see a lot of positives in our social awareness and and care for, for each other as human beings. And it certainly makes me 
remember what's really important in life. It's our health, our family, and our friends. One of the things that I was reflecting on the other day, it was actually a sunny day here in Seattle. And, and to your point, I saw a ton of people walking and it brought me back to when I was a kid. You know, yeah. in many ways, well that's how it used to be. You know, people yeah. sat in their front yards and went walking and they'd, they'd stop and, and chat. And, and so it's, it's really interesting to reflect on being in a neighborhood and, and seeing people out constantly walking. I, I see uh, people that are friends that are walking on six feet apart, but down the street together. And let's talk about the adoption of the technology. You said light switch. Was it a, hey, this just feels natural? Or did it feel strange the first couple of calls that you were doing? Yeah, I guess I did oversimplify it a bit because it, it uh, I mean, the light switch was we had to start doing it. Then there was the the panic. And, the, you know, I think almost every one of the doctors, myself included, well, you're nervous. You're doing something new and you're going to expose yourself that you don't know what the heck you're doing. And we certainly had problems with us on our side getting it to work appropriately. There were problems with the patients on the other side. So it was a, a nerve wracking situation, I think, just because it's the, it's the great unknown. And we had the usual problems that we've all experienced now with it. You can get the video to work, but you can't get the audio or vice versa, you know, or you have a crappy connection. And so you can't hear or see the patient very well. Those were the challenges that certainly early on for how to do it. So I, I come from a family of doctors. All, all of my uncles in Louisiana are family practitioners and heart, there's a heart surgeon and other doctors. And the one thing that I would say about all of them, they're amazing doctors. They have amazing bedside manner and care about their patients. As it relates to technology, I would say that they're just maybe a little bit behind in just the adoption of technology and feeling comfortable with it. As you look across your contemporaries, do you find that they are technologically savvy or that they have a lot of work to do to just get used to employing technology like Zoom into the way they work? I think you can imagine that there is a, a, a pretty good range. When we first went a few years ago to just electronic medical records, it was rough for some people and certainly led some people to just retire. And I think that the Zoom has been, uh, the telemedicine has has challenged people too. Again, it's change is hard, doing anything new, especially when you're used to knowing all that you do and doing it well and and, uh, and to be humbled again is uh, can be challenging for some people. Now, certainly for the younger people that we have, you know, they're, it's much easier for them to adopt it. I think I'm lucky in a, in a university setting where we're all about trying to find new things and try new, new ways to approach it. But even within that, change is hard. Yeah, I have a, a sign on my desk that President Obama kept on his, his desk that says hard things are hard. And I think sometimes we, we forget that, especially right now, that we're all having to do things that are different and things that are hard. But that in the long run, I think will bring lasting change and resiliency to a lot of professions and a lot of professionals. Yeah, I, I agree completely. What has been the patient response as they've, everybody's been forced to start working this way? How are they responding? Is it, hey, I missed that face-to-face or this is much more convenient? I think the vast majority of patients that we have worked with greatly appreciate it and prefer it. For a lot of people, especially if you're working, you know, I, I take care of a lot of older patients that are retired, but for a working patient, you can just carve out 15 minutes to, to hop on your computer and do your visit. You don't have to drive into the, the doctor's office. You don't have to pay for parking and then wait in, the, wait in line to get in or, you know, wait in the exam room and then the doctor's running late and all those kind of things. It's just, hey, I just do my quick appointment, get it done and, 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 and move on. 
The other thing that has been wonderful is that, you know, obviously you can have more than one person on, on a telemedicine call, on a Zoom call or a Teams call. And so the patient's families, whether no matter where they are uh, in the country, can join on the call as well. And for someone that does cancer and we're talking about, you know, different treatment options and uh, et cetera, it is so fantastic to be able to see the patient and then their three children in different spots on the phone as well and on the call to participate. Then we don't have the lost in translation when the patient passes it on to their family and everyone can as a group be more on board and help that person with the decision process. I interviewed a first grade teacher who had just moved to doing parent teacher conferences via Zoom. And he said the same thing, that it was amazing that he was now able to get both parents on the call, you know, where before one parent would show up. And I know, at least in my house, we take turns of going because it's, it's hard to, to get the schedules. But now, and even when their parents separated, he could get both of them on the call and, and have a conversation about their child and and. You know, that was pretty powerful in the work that he was doing. It's, it's interesting to see the, the commonality. How do you take vital signs? At least when I go to the doctor, the thing I enjoyed is one, the magazines. So I'd you know, tell I would need to get the, a magazine subscription because I'd get to be exposed to a bunch of stuff that I normally don't read. But it's the vital signs, right? The first thing that happens is you, you weigh me, you take my blood pressure and, and do those basic things. How do you handle that today? And how do you envision that? going forward if telemedicine really does increase? Yeah, it's a big issue because you can't get vitals unless they are somehow able to take it at home. You know, they could count their pulse or you could get their respirations, but you're not going to get their blood pressure at, the, at, at present time. And that is a challenge. And the lack of a physical exam also is a problem. Uh, now, certainly you can do some exams through just across the, just by looking at them. And I've had patients pull up their shirts to show me where their surgical scars are so I can help plan for, for the operation. But if you don't have a really high quality camera, you can see how if you're looking at a skin lesion or something, you might may have a challenge with that. that. So I think for the long term, the return patients where you've already have an established relationship with them, you're following up on how your symptoms doing, how's our new treatment going for you, that kind of thing where you if the vitals probably aren't as aren't as critical. But the challenge is certainly if you're managing someone's blood pressure or for a brand new patient where you want to have a sense because you're seeing their face and you may completely miss that they have significant obesity or significant lower extremity swelling that you 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 don't normally see. So that is going to have to be something to work through long term. But again, letting patients get in the door first quicker for a first visit, for a first consultation, and then deciding who needs to come in for an in-person or the follow-up and just avoiding those things. But there's no doubt not having vitals, not having all the parts of the exam is a drawback. But I think we can get around that for most of our conditions right now. Yeah, I can, I can imagine me, as you were talking, I was thinking, wow, just for the cost of parking a couple of times, I can buy my own blood pressure cuff and like some other things that I should have around the house and, and check my vitals. One of the things you mentioned that I've been thinking a lot, and, and it wasn't apparent to me at the beginning of this crisis, was the financial impact of in-person versus remote, right? The idea that I go to a facility and if I need to have my blood drawn or like a, a number of different services that are offered are all part of a financial model of a healthcare facility. When I go remote, those services are not as readily available. How do you square the business of health care and the services that are offered that bring in revenue for the hospital versus Patients that are saying, hey, I, 
I generally like this better. I live in a rural area. How do you start to square that? And, and what is the economic impact of that long term? It is something that we have to think about. Medicine is business, too. It costs a lot to keep the lights on and to, and to do what we do. So we can't not acknowledge that, which is why many states and Washington state is one of them that just recently approved pay or pay parity for in-person versus telemedicine. That got, that got passed earlier this year, because if you're not getting enough, as much money to see the patient in person versus telemedicine, that is a disincentive to see, telem- to see telemedicine patients. The other thing as you mentioned, just the extra, you know, downstream labs and CAT scans, et cetera, that they may or may not be coming in to get. Although I think we can work around that and they're still going to have to go in and get their labs and CAT scans and chest x-rays as well. But hospitals have what's called a facility fee, which is an additional charge on patients and their insurance and Medicare, Medicaid, to essentially pay for the whole infrastructure of the hospital. A private clinic doesn't have that. Their reimbursement may be a little bit higher for the provider because to account for that, but a doc doc in a hospital setting has both a professional fee and a facility fee. There is no facility fee with a telemedicine visit. So the hospitals are disincentivized to have us do telemedicine because they lose that revenue. Now, during this acute COVID crisis, they, this has been brought up a lot. They are allowing a facility fee to be captured now. This just came through a couple of weeks ago for patients we're doing telemedicine for. But there's clearly going to have to be a reevaluation of this whole concept of the uh, facility fee moving forward. So economics definitely play a part of it. Pay parity and uh, other aspects are crucial. Yeah, it's interesting that when you look at even big tech companies, right? I mean, there's, you know, Microsoft is building a multi-billion dollar campus. And of course, you know, Apple has the spaceship and all of those are facilities that when you do a fully burdened cost of an employee are added on, right? You know, this to have this person sit in this office generally costs about that much. And so all organizations, not only healthcare, are incented to ensure full utilization of that capital expenditure. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing that's being played out in medicine. One of the things that, that you do besides seeing patients is clinical trials and, and working with other doctors. And I know that from my experience in working on location, those flyby conversations and that collaboration are important. I, I can only assume that in, in your field, it's not only important, it's essential. And so we talked about the patient side, but when you think about the trials and the conversations and you collaborating with other doctors as you try to solve these complex issues, how does that happen remotely? Are you concerned with that aspect of your work? I really appreciate you bringing that up because it is, it's been nearly devastating to the research enterprises right now. First, for, from a standpoint of clinical trials, where trying new treatments, uh, new medications, most of those have been completely put on hold during COVID. There are a few rare exceptions, but over 90% of our clinical trials have been, have been closed to accrual during this time. So we are not finding those next treatments for patients. Obviously, there's COVID-specific trials, which are incredible that are happening, but the run-of-the-mill cancer therapy or new therapy for rheumatoid arthritis are, 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 have been on hold. So that has been rough. You take also that most of these we have funded through federal grants 
and the grants for five years, for example. And how, now we have to negotiate with the with the federal government to give us an extension of the money, or potentially more money, because a lot of the a lot of the funds are going to support salaries. Those are still being paid, and we're going to eat into the total budget for a clinical trial. The other aspect is that the what we call bench work, where you're sitting around in your chemistry lab, essentially doing pipettes and little mice studies, et cetera, trying the, the, all the buildup to clinical trials has come almost completely stopped, where letting, whereas normally a lab might have 10, 20 people, and they're letting one person in a lab at a time at the Fred Hodge Cancer Research Center, for example. And that has just completely stalled all of that research. And we're starting to kind of get a, couple, a little bit more of our people back in those spots, but it's going to be hard to come out of this for some time with what has had an impact on research. Now, I imagine that not everyone is saying, hey, this telemedicine thing is, is really helpful to patients. I'm leaning in. I'm, I'm learning. I'm imagining that there are still some naysayers or people that are like, I just can't wait to get back to the way it was. What are you hearing from people that are saying that or doctors or anybody in not only the doctors, but the other health professionals, what are their objections to using telemedicine after the fog of, of COVID clears? Yeah, I think I think people have pretty well embraced that it's going to have a role. It's just depending on how much in their practice uh, they can do it with. Those that really require a physical exam need to get back to seeing their patients uh, in person. And there are certainly fields where it's crucial. You can't really assess the problem without touching the patient and examining them. Uh, and a lot of these exams are sensitive exams where there's no way you could accomplish them over the tel- over over a screen. And then the other aspect is there's an assessment of performance status, how healthy, strong the patient is, how robust they are, trying to think of good ways to describe it, where it's just kind of your gestalt of, can this person tolerate this treatment? And it is just difficult sitting and looking only at their face through a television screen uh, or computer screen to really get that. So I think those are the things where we want to be able to see how well they do that, how well they can move, you know, see see their their whole body. But I think there haven't been, I have not encountered really any massive naysayers other than those that say, I can't see everybody this way. I can see it being part of my practice, but I need the in-person. So we talked about patients of yours that, you know, may have a computer or may have internet access and and access to the ability to do Zoom. But there's a large population in the United States that is underserved by the internet and may not have the technology. In your practice, how are you navigating that population? It's a real problem because there are a large number of individuals out there who don't have access to the internet or a, or a computer screen to do this with. And so we have had to, in those situations, use telephone visits. You know, we've talked about some of the limitations of telemedicine. Well, if you're just talking to a, on the phone to somebody, it's a tremendous loss there. And you know from your own meetings, you know, when you do them face-to-face, there's a lot more, lot more interaction and a lot more engagement. And part of, you know, the doctor-patient relationship is building that trust, and then that happens much easier through face-to-face, uh, even via the computer. So we've had to just do telephones for them. That has had a big impact too financially because a telephone visit is you, re- you get reimbursed 
$11 for a 10-minute phone call versus you know 10 times that for an in-person or a telemedicine. You take a hospital that serves an underserved population. They're already having problems financially because the patients have poor insurances that don't pay very well or no insurance. And then you put on top of that, they can't do telemedicine. So you're doing telephones. You're even getting less reimbursement for it and you worsen an existing problem. Now, thankfully, in the last couple of weeks, two or three weeks, there is some addressing of this that if a patient is unable to do telemedicine with video, we can collect on a telephone equivalent to a audio vis- a visual as well. But again, the patient doesn't have insurance. That's not going to help them either. So it's limiting the access and it's limiting uh, what we can do. Real problem. The conversation around inequality that the current situation has has brought up and, and whether that is access to opportunity and jobs or access to to medicine, it's, it's something that is being highlighted very acutely and, and really interesting to hear your perspective. Absolutely. Jonathan, thank you so much for, for taking the time to share your thoughts and, and your experience. I think one of the the things I've always been curious about as I've started to do experience telemedicine as a patient myself is what are the benefits and, and what are the challenges? And I think you did an amazing job of, of articulating those. I wish you the best. really enjoyed doing this. I appreciate you taking the time to do it. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy.